as a woman, I think it's also hard to identify with the vast majority of advisors, financial advisors at these financial institutions because 86% of them are men over the age of 50. And so I say all of this because, you know, what happens when the tools and resources aren't easily relatable or accessible to women? Well, women then don't invest. I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. Today on the podcast, we have the pleasure of interviewing Cameron Rogers. Cameron is a financial advisor and chartered financial analyst. She works at Elevest, a company that was built by women for women. They are on a mission to get more money into the hands of women. A decade ago, I was Cameron's personal trainer in Chicago, and I have absolutely loved seeing how successful she has become and what she's up to nowadays. So Cameron, we're excited to dive into all the important topics with you today, but please start by introducing yourself to our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Amy and Abby. I am so glad to be on. And Amy, it's really fun to reflect back on that time um, 11 years ago. Uh, you know, I'll provide some context for, for the audience and, and your listeners for, for me when I met Amy, I had um, I had just graduated college, so I was you know 22 years old. I had just um, moved to a city, to a new city, the city of Chicago, um, and so I felt like I was perpetually cold during that time. I, I did I did toughen up, but I'm a Californian originally, so I wasn't very tough at the time. And I had just started my first big investment job at a bank, which, as wonderful as it was, you know, I was working. 12 plus hours a day at a desk. I was eating all of the things I ate in college, but not moving as I did in college. And, um, you know, after several months of that mode, I knew I was off kilter. I knew my own physical wellness had taken a hit. And meeting um, Amy and training with you, Amy, was a friendship and relationship that gave me, you know, the tools and confidence to get back on track during that time. Um, you know, one more little side anecdote. It was, it was also just so fun. I know maybe people don't often use those qualifiers to describe, um, strength and and conditioning work. But, um, what I loved was during every one of our recoveries, um, which never seemed long enough, but I, I feel like we were always talking about guys and, and maybe that's not the appropriate thing to say <laughs> no, in a that's conversation totally appropriate. <laughs> about women and money. Um, we definitely talked about Drew a bunch. So this is just wonderful in retrospect. And Drew, if you're listening, it was all good things at the time. And so um, 11 years later, it's super special to be here with you both. Um, today, you know, we're talking about all things money, financial wellness, and investing. Um, as Amy mentioned at the beginning, I work for a company called Elevest, um, a company whose core mission is to get more money into the hands of more women. Um, how do you do that, you ask? Well, you help women build wealth. And we at Elevest focus on building wealth through investing. We're also normalizing money culturally. We're talking about it. We know that wealth needs to be inclusive, and our clients are uh, are women. Our clients are men. Uh, yes, we we love men. They just have to be down with our mission, and um, you know, and, and families across the wealth spectrum. Some of our clients are investing their first ten dollars ever, and some of our clients that have built wealth for a while are investing their next ten million dollars. And as a financial advisor. I work with our client base that has already built some wealth and I partner with them um, to build their own personalized investment strategy. Cameron, that overview, I'm so excited to dig into this. And to be honest, 
we feel like there's a lot of barriers that we're trying to overcome with this episode. For starters, sometimes money makes people automatically want to tune out. Like we hear that over and over again. Mm. And second, women sometimes want to opt out of this conversation. But Amy and I, we have always felt like it's really important to bring this subject into the podcast. And that's exactly why we have you on today. Let's start to cut through some of this. Why do you feel like a lot of these women are hesitant to join the conversation and maybe less likely to invest than men? Yeah. And, you know, we've, we've talked about this previously, but um, what's missing for women is a prioritization of this idea of financial wellness. So if we think about general wellness, it's an idea that is discussed so frequently. There are industries and, and companies built around general wellness, you know, whether it's it's physical wellness, mental wellness, um, or relationship wellness. And, you know, if, if the three of us are looking to address kind of an issue or consideration in those categories, um, it seems like the, the tools and resources for us are endless. You know, we really don't have to go far. And there are wellness focused tools that cater to certain genders, how people learn, how people are motivated, you know, turning back to, to kind of Amy and, and my, our beginnings, you know, I had done, you know, my own research on what might be best for my physical wellness and accountability at the time. And like determined that Amy was my person when it comes to financial wellness, that breadth of options really hasn't existed and money and conversations around money have historically been gendered and in many ways exclusive. Um, turn on CNBC or traditional money media, it, it's not really inclusive. It's, it's kind of you know a weird combination of, a, of an investments 101 class and an, and an NFL game, excuse me. As a woman, I think it's also hard to identify with the vast majority of advisors, financial advisors at these financial institutions, because 86% of them are men over the age of 50. And so I say all of this because, you know, what happens when the tools and resources aren't easily relatable or accessible to women? Well, women then don't invest. We uh, don't prioritize financial wellness. And we don't take agency over our money. This translates into some interesting behaviors between women and men. When it comes to money, men see money as dynamic, um, in many cases abundant. I'd almost equate it to um, you know, the, the motions of, of a river. You know, money comes in, money goes out, it, it grows, there's a dynamism to it. Women view money um, as, as static, as a scarce resource, as something that um, really directionally can only go down, not up. I would almost equate it to, to something like a pond and how that manifests in terms of gender differences when it comes to investing is that women hold over 70% of their wealth in cash. Oh, and all of that speaks to me so much. I work for a corporate-based wellness company, and we have hundreds and hundreds of different resources around physical well-being or you know, how to lose a little bit of weight or even a little bit more on stress. But when it comes to finances, there's like three spreadsheets. Hmm. And what's more interesting is that the people who download those when we're able to see the census data or the people who sign up for those resources, it's mostly men. So everything you're saying right there, I'm just like nodding my head in agreement. Absolutely. And you know, there's this there's this tendency around women and I do it myself with, with things, you know, I know less about, I feel, feel grateful that my, my specialty is financial wellness, but there's this tendency around women and, and I don't blame us, but it's kind of wanting to know, wanting to know everything before we make a decision, like this feeling of I've got to buy the book, right? I've got to buy the book and read the book. And once I've read the book, it, you know, then I can take action that the problem with the finance and investing books, and this is coming from someone, you know, like a practitioner in this space, is they're super boring. And, you know, you're not going to read the book, and then you're not going to do it. And you're in this sort of weird limbo. I think where women often make a mistake is misidentifying outsourcing expertise, right, to an expert, to an advisor, to a company, and outsourcing decision making. And, you know, unfortunately, when they don't feel like they have the tools to outsource 
expertise, they instead outsource decision making, whether it's to a family member or a partner or kind of someone else in their network. But when you outsource decision making, you're you're really outsourcing agency and your own personal agency. And it's it's very hard to get that back. And so that's why I feel like we often find ourselves in these in these tough places when it comes to money and our own personal agency. Mm, and we're going to get so much further into that. But I thought that in the beginning, we should talk about why this is an issue. Mm. So why do we need women to start investing? And why do we need to invest in women owned businesses? Mm-hmm. You know, when I, um, when I left my former job at a bank to join Elevest, I got a lot of feedback around that career move. And what was funny to me at the time, and to be honest, is, is still kind of funny, is that the most consistent feedback I got was like, huh, Cam, you know, interesting career move for you, very niche industry. And while yes, financial wellness for women may be niche, of course, you know, we at LFS are on a mission to change that. Um, half of the US population or half of the global population is not so niche. And, you know, look, women in the US earn over $4 trillion annually in income through our contributions to the US economy in the form of employment. Women in the US have decision-making control over $11.2 trillion. Now, um, you know, Abby and Amy, I don't know if that number resonates with you it honestly doesn't resonate with me it's 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 not tangible to me you know I, I don't see that in my bank account unfortunately but but that number is right around the annual output of the economy of china so it's a big number and women in the us will also inherit just shy of 30 trillion dollars over the next 40 years so if that's niche, sure, we'll, we'll call it niche, but it's, you know, it's powerfully niche. Um, you know, you're, you're probably wondering, well, if, if women have all this money, uh, then why, Cam, should we focus so heavily on investing? And unfortunately, despite all of those statistics, women are still underinvested. And the average wealth gap for, or, or the wealth gap for the average woman in the US is 32 cents. To every dollar a white man has. If you break that statistic out for uh, black women and brown women in the US, that wealth gap is actually one penny to um, a white man's dollar. And I'll let that sink in. And this wealth gap, unfortunately, exacerbates a lot of other life nuances that women have to think about, including the fact that, you know, we women on average earn 22% less than our male counterparts. Um, This means we retire with two thirds of the savings that men do. Um, You know, in addition to this, women live as as you both know, on average, about six to eight years longer than men, which, you know, to me means that we just need more money through our lifetimes. Um, So so this importance in investing, um, you know, is, is very much also focused on the fact that that not investing is somewhat of a of a retirement crisis for women. Well, and it sounds like a losing strategy. Like when you say all those numbers and you're talking about the mm-hmm. trillions of dollars that we have to spend, yet we're not spending it right. And back to that scarcity mindset, like no wonder finances are a challenge for so many of us as mm-hmm. women. Okay, so Cameron, becoming debt-free became really popular. And I'll be the first to admit that we were on that train. But can you speak on your take? on how to balance paying down debt while also investing. And do you recommend that most people do strike a balance? You know, I, I struggle with this question a lot. Um, uh, and I struggle with the connotations around debt, as, as you both probably feel. It, it's very binary, right? Like you are either in debt or you are debt-free. It's, it's sort of two very, very different ends of the spectrum. Um, and what I'll say is that, you know, for for certain individuals, there may be a prudent amount of debt and type of debt to take on, um, but it's an individual by individual decision. Um, when I talk with with my you know my clients and community around the type of debt to hold and um, amount of debt to hold, I like to requal- requalify with clients what 
debt or borrowed money actually is. Um, and so when, when you borrow, um, you're essentially borrowing from your future earnings, right? Or, or said another way, you're, you're pulling future earnings into current day. And you should think then think about debt as a trade-off, right? It's the cost for pulling forward those earnings uh, to today to, to fund something. Um, you know, in many cases, uh, there is a case to be made for pulling forward future earnings to fund something, right? Like if, if you are pulling forward your future earnings to pay for a higher education degree where, you know, you develop a skill set and will have higher earnings over time, like in many cases, that's positive borrowing, right? The rate of return on that borrowing will far exceed the cost to, to borrow in current day. I, I think similarly, um, you know, of, of that logic, when I think about mortgage debt and, and buying, or excuse me, borrowing to buy that first house and the, the benefits of that house based are, you know, as weighed against that borrowing. So, um, you know, that's the, that's the type of of debt that I think in many cases it makes sense to strategically hold. You know, it's harder to make that case when you're pulling forward earnings for some sort of discretionary purchase, because in many cases that investment may not play out. And in many cases, it may not earn more than the debt you're taking on to acquire it, most often um, credit card debt. So, so my view is you know, you should avoid taking on, and I hate to use the term bad, uh, but I'll use it, that kind of bad debt, the stuff with um, scary high interest rates, you know, most often credit card debt. Our rule at Elevest is that if you can't afford to buy something without putting it on your credit, credit card, you really can't afford to buy it and that credit cards should be used more as a convenience. Um, you know, one question we've actually gotten a lot lately is, okay, well, what if you have savings, you know, pool of savings, and then you also have credit card debt, how do you weigh that decision? And in this current moment, um, my suggestion would, would be to use a component of your savings beyond what you might have saved in your emergency fund to pay off that, that debt. And this logic might sound a little bit counterintuitive, but if you think about it, if you've looked at your savings account, if you've looked at the interest you're earning on your savings account today, which is which is nearly nothing, you know, your savings are not earning you anything, but your debt is costing you a lot. So it makes sense to to use your savings to to pare back, you know, that that debt that that ends up costing you a lot over time. We should have been talking about finances instead of boys during my personal training <laughs> sessions. My goodness. We're going um, to have to do a 2.0. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So another question we wanted to ask is what are the common financial mistakes that everyday people make that might not be well known? Yeah. And, you know, I, I thought a lot about this question and, and there are I think there are things that are that are well known that we talk a lot about, right? Like don't uh, don't buy high, sell low, don't time the market. I think this audience has probably heard that a lot. Um, one piece of advice that um, is not talked about enough that is so deeply important, and when I'm starting a relationship with a, a new client or new family, I always ask about. Um, I see a lot of. Uh, young families, I see a lot of couples, I see a lot of um, young families with kids who do not have planning documents in place. And when I'm talking about planning documents, I'm talking about things like a will, a healthcare power of attorney, um, you know, medical directives, general powers of attorneys. And if you don't have a codified plan in place, then what happens should should anything happen to you? God forbid is is your estate plan is not your own, and so all of these things that we'll be talking about, and all of these ideas and and tools and whatnot. I mean, that basically goes out out the window. So I would say priority number one that is is not talked about, but a common mistake is not having um, all of those documents and and plans in place. And and so um, if you do not have those in place. If, if this resonates with you, um, I would say look locally for um, a, a trust and estate attorney that can help you you draft those documents and, and get those set up. Mm, thank you for mentioning that. I know a lot of people 
you know, don't have those in place. And we, we just think that we're still young and that mm-hmm. things, but things happen as we all know. Okay. So I wanted to get really micro for our audience. Our goal here is to always make these podcast episodes very tangible. Mm-hmm. So if someone has never invested on their own previously, what is the very first steps that they can take? Yeah, absolutely. I love tangible. I'm like, give me the list of things to do. I need the bullet points. So before um, before anyone starts investing, there are a couple of things that I would say are need to do's and we've, we've sort of covered them, but I'll reiterate them. Um, one is to um, pay off high interest debt. So I know we just talked about that. And one is to make sure that you have some cash set aside in an emergency fund. Um, you know, on the high interest debt piece, I'll, I'll remind the group that high interest debt um, tends to be uh, debt in the double digits APR category, and APR stands for annual percentage rate. Uh, a lot of that tends to be credit card debt. So I would focus on high interest debt and credit card debt before anything else. Um, you know, after paying off that high interest debt, um, I do encourage everyone to set up an emergency fund. Um, think of this as like three to six months of living expenses held in cash, not invested, but but you know, held in in something very liquid, um, you know, optimally cash in a savings account or whatnot. And I, you know, my guidance is is three to six months of living expenses in normal times, but um just given everything going on and, and continued uncertainty as it relates to the pandemic, if you have the capacity to do it, I would keep six months. I would I would be a little bit more um, conservative right now. So first two steps, pay off high interest debt um, and, and set up your emergency fund. Um, next step, and this will sound um, a little fluid and, and loosey-goosey, maybe it's the Californian in me, but um, it is important to reflect on what you're investing for and almost like bifurcate your various investments by what you're trying to solve for. It may be, you know, a short-term goal. It may be a long-term goal. And the reason why it's important to do that, um, and hopefully this contextualizes that that point of reflection, um, is the goal that you're looking to solve for should guide your mix of investments in um, equities, so also known as stocks and, and fixed income, also known as bonds. And we'll focus on kind of those two categories of investments right now. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you a couple of, of examples. Like, let's say you have a near-term goal. Um, and when I say near-term within the next, like, one year, two years, um, like the down payment on a home purchase. So let's say you're planning to buy a house in a year and you will need, um, you know, your existing savings for the down payment. Uh, how I think about that is the tenor or timeline of that goal and your savings is a year, right? Because you will need to, you know, hand over the money in a year. Um, in that case, your mix of investments in equities and fixed income should be more heavily weighted to fixed income. You know, why do you ask? Well, when you invest in the fixed income of a company or government, like think of this as basically extending them alone. Like you were actually doing the lending, they borrow from you, they pay you interest. And at the end of the loan, at the end of that term of that fixed income investment, they pay you back. So there's not a lot of, you know, there's not much volatility in in the principle of that investment, but you are are earning interest, um, which is why, you know, for near term goals, we tend to shift portfolios. So they're, you know, more heavily weighted in fixed income. On you know the flip side, let's say you're a young person like all of us, <laughs> and uh, and have retirement savings that you won't be touching or accessing for you know 20, 30, 40 years. That tenor of you know that particular retirement money for you is decades, right? Plural decades. Um, in that case, um, in terms of your investments, I would say your your portfolio should be weighted a little bit more towards. Uh, public equities, also known as stocks. And a stock at its core is uh, partial ownership in a company. Um, and when you own partial ownership in a company or you have partial ownership in a company, you um, participate in the economics of that company, right? Whether it's the earnings, 
the cash flow and the long-term value of that company to society. Well, you know, companies have good quarters and good years and, and bad quarters and bad years. And so when you're invested in a stock, sometimes you experience that, you know, that volatility of, of the up years and down years. But if it's a good stock investment, the general trajectory is hopefully positive growth. Um, so the rationale for, you know, waiting longer term investments to stocks or equities as opposed to fixed income is you, you know, you basically have more time to ride out that volatility to experience, you know, that long term growth of the stock. And, you know, I would I would think about stocks and investments in stocks as kind of like a, a five to, to 10 year hold period. Um, at the very least. So that's kind of the process for determining an appropriate mix. And once you determine that mix, it's it's very much up to personal preference and to actually how you begin investing. Um, history will tell you that it's nearly impossible to time the market. And, and so in many cases, um, you know, it's just it's just good to be begin investing and, and, and get invested as early as possible. The last year, I will tell you, 2020 was tough behaviorally. Like I, I had a ton of client relationships that began in, in February and March. And in that case, um, we worked through a strategy called dollar cost averaging into the market. So we basically identified the amount that we wanted to invest over time. We came up with a plan for um, you know, when we would invest that money almost systematically, kind of how we invest our 401k money, our retirement money and saying, okay, on the first of the month or on the first and the 15th of the month for the next three months, we're going to put, you know, this much of, we're going to invest this much of your investments into the market. And, you know, some days we may be kind of buying into these investments at a discount. Some days it may be at a, a premium, but we're totally removing the behavioral element of, you know, and, and fear that you may be buying at the top of the market or, or selling at the at the bottom of the market. And I actually think that's a, a really good strategy for those who are, who are just beginning to invest. We want to take a quick break to bring up our podcast sponsor for this week, which is Gooder Sunglasses. Cameron, she's calling from California and oh, it's sunny out there. It's bright. Spring's coming, guys. Spring's coming. If you're in the Midwest like us, we know it's coming. Um, but Gooder has been such a good partner of ours. Amy and I have both worn them for many, many years. And now that they're a partner, it's been even more fun to get into some of the different styles. Guys, they have so many different things. They have some coming out specific for different marathons. They have ones that are coming out for different holidays. They have blue blockers. Like these are all things that we had no idea about until we partnered with them. So they are extending a discount to our Herself community. You can use Herself at checkout and that'll get you 15% off your entire order. So again, Herself at checkout for 15% off your order. And guys, remember the website is gooder, G-O-O-D-R.com. And again, 15% off using code herself. So much good in that answer. And Colin always says, it's not timing the market, Abby. It's time in the market. So oh, just yes. getting, <laughs> getting numbers, getting yes, some money Colin. in there right away. <laughs> okay. And I think, I think as everyone just thinks about those answers and thinks about your response to that, it's what are those goals? Like, are you trying to pull money in a year because you have an investment that you want to make like that house or like a car that you want to put a, a good down payment on? Or is it something that you want to last, have something that's going to last five, 10, even more years? So I'm glad that you brought all those pieces into it. Mm. Okay. So we have put aside the emergency fund. We have paid off the high interest debt. So for those of us in positions to contribute to retirement, I want to ask, what's your take on maxing out your 401k through work versus maybe investing elsewhere? Is there any right or wrong way to do this? Yeah, I um, I really like the the 401k as a saving structure, and I, I like it for a number number of reasons. You know, it's it's work sponsored, um, so your employer has taken the time and has the team to you know go through various investment options, the, the fees you're paying. So it's it's gone through that almost corporate like process, um, vetting process. I like how individuals can set up their contributions to their 401k. For most people, it, it tends to be automated, right? Like you contribute 
monthly or bi-monthly. It comes out of your paycheck. You never see that money. There's not that behavioral component. You're not really timing anything. Going back to this idea of, of dollar cost averaging into the market, um, 401ks are a, a tax efficient saving structure. So your earnings grow um, tax-free over time, um, which is which is huge and important. You can um, contribute a lot uh, to a 401k. So if you're under 50, you can contribute up to $19,000 500 annually. And in some cases, um, companies will match up to a certain point of your contributions. You know, there's, uh, you know, there's no, no free lunch, but that's, you know, to me, one of the closest things to free money. So for retirement savings, I would absolutely start here. Um, Abby, you make a, a good point. It is important to take other obligations off for often near term obligations into account um, when you are thinking about funding your 401k. So if, um, you know, if you do have high interest debt, if you don't have an emergency fund yet, I would factor that into, um, you know, your train of thought before you're maxing out your 401k, um, because those are near term obligations and costly obligations. Um, just as a, a general rule of thumb, this is this is in some ways um, extending beyond your question, but it, it tends to be a good tool and, and reminder is there's um, a personal finance rule out there and, and you both have probably heard about it, but it's um, it's called the 50-30-20 rule. And it's a good um, guide for helping individuals to think about how their after-tax income should be divvied up between their needs, their wants, and their savings. So in the, um, in the 50-30-20 rule, 50% of your after-tax dollars should be going to needs. So think um, bills, groceries, transportation, housing, minimum debt payments, et cetera. Um, in the 50-30-20 rule, 30% of your after-tax dollars should go to your wants. Um, you know, so for me, like maybe that's you know, some bottles of wine or, you know, that or Netflix or, or whatnot. Um, and, and this is important, um, especially today, um, you know, but probably the area today too that that 30% where we, you know, have the most ability to kind of trim or, or scale back if we need to, because it's a it's a strange time, obviously. Um, and the last 20% in the 50 30 20 rule goes to future use. So, so think, Retirement savings, taxable savings, um, savings for a big purchase or expenditure. Um, so, you know, to go back to your original question, the 401k structure is amazing. If you have the capacity to max it out, I say max it out. But like, remember that there may be these near term things nagging at you. And then at that point, it may make sense to say, okay, in this given year, how much can I? you know, contribute to my 401k versus some of some of these higher cost things, say, for example, you know, high interest debt or, or whatnot. Mm. What I'm getting out of that answer is prioritization and allocation. If you aren't going to max out your 401k because you have high interest to pay off, make sure that that money is going to that interest then and not landing in that 30% spending of what you want. Like I think people have trouble you know, kind of making sure that their money gets where it's supposed to be. Absolutely. You're spot on. As a follow-up, what are your thoughts on self-managing your portfolio versus having a professional do it? I know that for Drew and I, as well as Colin and Abby, we do a little bit of each and we would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, my thoughts are, and I'm a professional advisor, um, so you could say I'm biased, but I think I'm pretty even killed on this. Um, however you choose to put your strategy in place, um, you do want to make sure it's paying for itself. So if you're focused on, um, you know, doing it yourself, yes, like DIY makes logical sense from a pay for itself perspective. Um, you know, if, if that's the right plan. For you, um, and you both know this, you just need to be super vigilant to make sure that you're, you know, one, doing the proper research around what you're investing in, but two, you're re rebalancing your portfolios at least annually, right? Because there may be drift in, in certain asset classes. Um, you want to make sure you're also rebalancing your portfolios when, when life changes come up, right? Because you're, 
you know, your investment allocation is is not static. Your your investments today will not be the appropriate investments for you 10, 20, 30 years from now because you know what you're funding with your investments will evolve and, and change over time, and, and that's life. Um, and you also want to make sure you're being um, as tax efficient as you can be. As an advisor, my view is when I'm starting a relationship with a prospective client, I do so much work and hustle so much for that individual or family before they're actually a client that I, I I'm almost like I dare you to not hire me when it you know when it comes to the time of establishing um, a relationship and that that may be a, a little bit bold um, but it's it's worked at, as a way to engage with new clients so far. Um, I also actually openly give all prospective clients a list of questions to ask both me and other money managers um, to make sure that they have the right service model when it comes to their money. You know, it's a set of, of questions that I think are most helpful. I'm happy to share it with this group after the, you know, Amy and Abby, I can send them to you, but I'll, I'll go through them right now. Um, I always encourage clients to ask um, about whether the money manager they're talking to is a fiduciary. And, and basically what a fiduciary is, is they are legally obligated to put their client's interests ahead of um, ahead of their own and ahead of their business. I tell clients to ask about fees. So ask about kind of what the advisor's fee, fee model is and if there are economies of scale for clients. Um, I tell them to ask who the custodian is. Um, so basically they're asking, you know, where do my investments live? Where are my assets custodied? I tell them to ask about investment support. So you always want to ask who's managing my money? How often are you rebalancing portfolios? Um, you know, how are you investing tax efficiently? I encourage them to ask about um, the existing service model. So saying, hey, what's your service model? How often should I be reviewing my portfolio with you? I would ask about financial planning. So I would say, do you have financial planning within your offering? Is this part of the service model or is it an additional service? Um, always ask about performance, but I, will, I would almost contextualize it as, you know, how do you measure client portfolio success? Because, you know, every client's portfolio will be allocated differently depending on what they're looking to accomplish with their money. So it's, you know, you, you may not get sort of a, a static number, but there should be a way to understand how clients of that advisor have, you know, succeeded in their goals over time. I always tell clients to ask about the diversity of the company and their commitment to diversity, which is huge. As, as we talked about earlier, when, you know, when I mentioned that 86% of financial advisors are, are men over the age of 50. And then um, something that's coming up more and more, and I, and I think you'll see as you're doing more investing is this idea of making an impact uh, with your money. So I would, you know, I, I tell clients to ask perspectives or, you know, how do you help clients invest sustainably? How do you measure the impact of invested dollars if that's a focus for the client? And, you know, what sort of impact reporting do you have? It's also interesting too, because both of our husbands are just so interested in the stock market and research and, and, you know, arguably they have the time. It's almost like a, a hobby of theirs. Mm -hmm. um, whereas I could see other families with small children, they might not have that same interest or time. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a very interesting conversation. I totally agree. And to the extent that, you know, it can become a household conversation and more of a family conversation, you know, we, we, we encourage it. 100% right there in that list of questions was perfect. Like there was a lot of questions right there. So we'll throw those up in the Patreon account so that you guys can have that checklist to go off of. But I'm excited Terrific. to go through those. Yeah, I'm excited to go through those, those with Colin because I'm not sure. I'm not sure if we're asking all those questions. Um, and I want to make sure that we are taking that into our own control. So besides going to Google, which I know can have all sorts of information, <laughs> what are some trustworthy resources that our listeners can use to really help them start to educate themselves on the current and the future financial decisions? I mean, you know, I'm going to say Alabas. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I know. I, I truly, I, um, you know, we're, we're, we're building this 
um, platform. And I mean, you know, the core of what we're doing is managing our clients' money, but surrounding that is this content platform and, and way ways to engage with our clients um, around money that is so powerful. So I would, you know, take a look at our our website, take a look at our Instagram. Um, we actually have the greatest like share of social wallet of any financial institution in the country, which is like the lowest bar to beat. If you kind of historically know the the kind of social media profiles of big banks and whatnot, but we we still take pride in that. So so definitely check out Elevast. Um, I really like Nerd Wallet. I think they have some great content and explain stuff well. Um, from a podcast perspective, I would recommend um, Planet Money. I think that's great. I would recommend um, Business Casual, and then I think um, the Wall Street Journal, Wall Street Journal, excuse me, is, uh, What's News in the Morning is a is a quick way to get more so financial news, less less so kind of delving through um, you know the the fundamentals of investing. I also um, receive in the morning a couple of daily emails that I think do a good job of distilling investment concepts. And those are um, Morning Brew, um, Robin Hood Snacks, and Finimize. Some of these have such interesting names. <laughs> but if you recommend them, girl, we will we will okay, read I them. Do. <laughs> <laughs> We are almost to the end here, but we definitely want to squeeze out some more of your expertise. So we were wondering, what are some of the biggest misconceptions about investing? Um, I, you know, I don't know if I'd, I'd call them um, misconceptions, but one thing I, I do want to stress is to own an investment for the right reasons. Um, back in pre-pandemic COVID times when we you know, got together in person, I would get frustrated by what I would pretty much call dinner party ideas. So, or, you know, cocktail party ideas. So going to some dinner party or cocktail party and, you know, everyone's talking about Bitcoin or cannabis or esports or, you know, insert. I mean, I guess today that would be, you know, that would be GameStop. Um, and, seeing people's response to those conversations and 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 how they incorporate those types of investments into into their broader planning strategy look like i don't want to knock the merits of these ideas because they can be the right opportunities for certain people at, at certain levels of wealth um but i do want to stress that um you should own an investment for the right reason and in my book the foundational reasons are um, capital preservation. So what that means is you're, you know, you're trying not to lose money or you're preserving your capital. You want to own an investment potentially for capital appreciation. So you're trying to grow your wealth. In some investments, you're looking for income. And so that basically means cash return to you. Um, and you may be seeking out broader diversification, right? Like diversification of your of your total portfolio strategy. Um, at Elevest, I'm I'm fully aware that future dinner party conversations are not going to be about you know long term diversified um, money management. I've come to terms with that over time. I know I'm not going to you know be the kind of key person or key speaker in in dinner party conversations. Um, I know it's not a sexy topic and it won't light up a room. Um, but my whole thought process is with these tools, if I can get you to where you need to be with the right diversified set of investments, you know, that's, hey, that's compelling. And, and in my book, that's dinner party worthy conversation. Well, it can just be such a roller coaster, like emotionally investing in those types of things. And then just with your bank account, it can look like a roller coaster. So it can be really nerve wracking. You brought up GameStop. I know that AMC is another one. What is your view on all the recent activity? I know they've been like spiking. What are your thoughts there? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, there were some good, um, I guess, some good and less good things happening into the lead up to the, the GameStop, et cetera, madness. I would say from a, a good perspective, there are far more people across the U.S. participating in investing than I think, you know, ever before. Pre-pandemic, only, you know, half of the households in the U.S. owned equities and by the end of December of last year, December of 2020, a platform like Robinhood had, you know, amassed about 20 million users. And you're seeing a lot more people engaged in what's going on 
in the financial markets. So there's this further democratization of wealth, which again is, is what we're super focused on. Um, I would say on, on, on kind of the bad side, we're almost a year into the pandemic. Um, for, for lack of a, a better way to say this, you know, people are at home, people are bored, people are online, um, you know, they're following Reddit, Wall Street bets, et cetera. And there's been this sort of like coalescing around some of these trades. There, there are a lot of other kind of more technical nuances at, at play, but there, but there have been these sort of retail movements around some of these trades. Um, you know, going back to the fundamentals, when I buy a stock, the question I ask myself is, do you know? Do I want to earn these own these earnings for the next five to ten years? Do I believe in this company's ability to grow their revenue? Do I believe in their ability to keep their costs down? And do I believe in their ability to to reinvest in their business in a way that makes their business model more valuable? Um, company earnings actually have a high correlation um, with the trajectory of. Uh, a company stock price over time. So, you know, we look to earnings and growth in earnings as an indication of, you know, the ability of a company's stock to continue to appreciate this. So, you know, I say all of this, you know, and knowing this, what does it mean if I invest in a company that hasn't grown its earnings recently, but I'm still betting that that stock price goes up? Well, to me, that's pure speculation around the price of a stock, said another way, it feels a lot like gambling. Um, to put GameStop into context, GameStop sales um, had fallen 10 of the, the last 11 quarters, um, dropping more than 30% per quarter on average. GameStop hadn't turned a profit since 2017 and has gone through um, five CEOs, I think, over the last three years or so. So, you know, I get it. We, you know, we all missed our Vegas trip last year. <laughs> you know, there's, a, there's a tenant of Vegas that we need to remember, um, and that's don't bet more than you can afford to lose. Um, unfortunately, in the case of GameStop and some of these other names, people bet the house, which is really scary and really unfortunate and and this downside of more people being engaged with financial markets but you know from my perspective it is betting and and we've you know I don't know if we've seen the the, the full cycle in in GameStop stock price but we've seen um you know a, a pretty spectacular turn and you know I would I would correlate that a lot more to that speculative gambling side of investing. Yeah, it was it was really interesting to watch because it became pop culture. Like I would scroll down my Instagram feed and there were all these memes and information. Um, you know, a lot of people saying, I don't even know, I don't even understand what this is, what it means. And I read through a lot of good slide throughs that explained exactly what it was. So I was like, I feel good that people are kind of learning, but I can also see the downfalls in the gambling, mm -hmm. the, you know, get rich quick stuff usually is not the best bet. Yeah. And, you know, I would encourage this audience, um, LFS put together and it's, it's laid out well on our, on our Instagram, um, you know, uh, uh, some slides of, of the terms and the dynamics at play. So I would encourage this group to take a look um, and obviously happy to talk through it, um, you know, but also as, as an industry more broadly, I think, you know, it was not encouraging to see, you know, these, these great owners and holders of wealth, almost encouraging it at the peak, right? The, the Elon Musk's of the world, the, you know, the Winklevosses of the world. And so I think there, there's also um, a standard that, you know, a lot of these very visible people in the markets need to, need to make when something like this happens that, you know, it's, it's not okay to encourage it because at the end of the day, you know, often who loses in these trades are, you know, new or, or early retail investors. Okay, completely shifting gears. Our last question is very hard hitting. 
And you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but what was it like to have me as a personal trainer? If you remember, <laughs> I did put you up on a blind date with Peter. Oh, so I feel like I was sure. a very full service oh, trainer. Amy, I had forgotten about that until now. <laughs> wow, you did. I I literally, I mean, so it was I think it only made a, they only made it to one day. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I hey, I welcome, I welcome blind dates any anytime. Um it was, I mean, as I mentioned, it was so fun. I remember us up in that like remember that like little room upstairs and you know we would like do all of our things but we were chatting and you know to my point from earlier like everyone needs to to build their ecosystem around them right like yeah. going back to this idea of wellness like you need your you need your people and you need that ecosystem that you're comfortable with and can engage with and grow with and like that was our relationship. And I think it would have continued if you didn't move. <laughs> Drew, dang it. <laughs> Drew, yeah. shaking, shaking my, uh, my fist in the air, but it was, um, it was so wonderful. And I think, you know, to that point, you need your people. And I am, and I was at the time so grateful to have you. And I'm now reflecting on that setup too. And, and just love that. I, I had forgotten about that until now. <laughs> Oh, I loved hearing that story too. Um, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Cameron. This has been, it's been so valuable, not only for us, but also for our listeners. And we'd love if you could let our people know where they can find a little bit more of you. Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, broad Elevest, definitely check out um, Elevest.com, E-L-L-E-V-E-S-T. We are um, also on Instagram. I think we have a great Instagram uh, LinkedIn as well. And, um, you know, if you're, if you're kind of doing all the clicking and all the following, I would um, follow our founder and CEO, Sally Krawcheck, who, you know, is, is just a powerhouse and tremendous and, you know, took her own personal money and wealth aha moment after years and years of being the most senior woman on Wall Street to, you know, to decide to, you know, create and build LFS. So um, I would follow all of those things. If there's something in particular that resonated with you, or if there's something I didn't expand upon enough, please reach out to me. Um, so my email is crogers, so C-R-O-G-E-R-S at LFS.com. Um, you know, I think Abby and Amy, we can also maybe put that in, um, you know, whatever, whatever summary we have of this um, so people can reach out. And I will also get those points to you both about things to ask your financial advisor, because that is so very important as well. Well, thank you. Thank you again. And yeah, we'll make sure to include that in the show notes. And we just hope for our listeners that this was empowering. There was so much information in here. So listen to it, listen back to it if you need to, and take away the points that you can start using today to really make yeah, all your, all the, your financial future just a little bit brighter. So thanks again, Cameron. Thank you both. Talk to you soon.